Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes. Thank you for joining us. I want to just take a minute and reflect on a moment of clarity that I had last week. So with all the chaos going on, I decided we would keep our planned family camping trip to the Everglades that we had scheduled during spring break. Since they hadn't closed the national parks, they closed the state parks in Florida, but not the national parks, I thought it was an indication we should stay on our path and visit the swamp. I am so glad I did this as we had no internet, no news, and simply time with each other and nature. And there was a lot of cool nature, I'll tell you that. So the first night when I was walking through the campgrounds, I looked up to the sky with my kids, my four kids and my husband, and I saw wow, those stars are bright. And the kids were in awe of how bright they were too. We were totally protected from the noise and the clutter that typically surrounds us. And I couldn't help but compare that in my mind to the sky at home, which also has beautiful stars, but they're muted with all the light and noise that surrounds us. That bright, clear sky and stars reminded me to capture each moment and savor each moment. I was really surprised that the kids were so in awe of the brightness too. They kept asking, why are there so much brighter here? Why are they so much brighter? And I just kind of said, the woods are giving us the ability to see clearly because we are uninterrupted from the noises in the rest of the world. And that said, I want to thank each of you for being hand therapy heroes in your own space with your own families and positions. Today, I'm honored to have the opportunity for you to meet Sarah Dorer. She's an occupational therapist at Washington Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, where she's worked closely with the hand surgeons there for over 13 years. Sarah is currently an adjunct professor at George Washington University and Trinity Washington University, and she's taught many continuing education courses. Sarah was elected to the ASHT Research Board in 2018 and is the current chair of the ASHT Journal Club. We're gonna chat with her a little bit about the current state of affairs and then dive into some of her research and special interest with kinesiophobia. So Sarah, can you tell us how you decided to pursue the hand and upper extremity? Hi, um, I'd love to tell you how I got into hand um, and upper extremity rehab. Uh, I actually was working in acute care and I just wasn't enjoying it. And I went to my supervisor and said, you know, I don't know if OT is for me. I really want to get into something different. Um, and he said, well, have you ever thought about doing outpatient? And I said, no. He said, let me take you on and mentor you and let's see if you like it. And I've been doing it ever since. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I started working down in Virginia Beach area at first, and then I came to Washington, D.C., to, and I 
was at George Washington University for three years. And now I've worked for two hand surgeons for the last 13 years. And I still love it. Um, still find it exciting, interesting. So glad I made that choice that long ago. Awesome. Very awesome. So right now, with the way things are going in the world, I would love to talk for just a little bit about how your clinic practice has been altered with the current state of affairs with the COVID-19. Sure. So we've put some things into place, although this is a private physician-owned practice. So I do think that it's sort of changing day by day and how we've been managing things. Uh, first, we have a sign on the door before you come in asking if you have any symptoms. And if you do, that you are unable to enter our practice and give you a number to call one of our physicians. Um, then we have them fill out a second screening tool when they come in the door to then ask if they've had any specific symptoms um, of COVID-19. Uh, at that time, if they answer yes, then we have to interview them further and then decide if they need to then leave the premise. Uh, addition to just screening tools that we've been doing, we've been, you know, it's gone back and forth about the PPE because there is a mask shortage. Um, we're gloving between patients, hand washing, constantly cleaning everything, cleaning it in front of the patient so they feel comfortable. I mean, again, I talked to the patient saying, you know, what is your comfort level being here right now? What can I do to make you feel more comfortable here? And, you know, generally, they're really happy that I'm asking them that, happy that I'm putting it out there so that we can all feel comfortable in this environment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, using PPE, which, again, wasn't always even pushed. I mean, they told us first that the masks weren't effective. Now, you know, there's a mask shortage and they're saying just use the mask or use the same mask over and over again. So, I, you know... I, these things I'm not particularly even comfortable with, but you know, we're in a changing, it's changing all the time and we're doing the best we can. So your position itself is still full-time clinic or have you had to add telehealth services or you, what's the status on that? So right now I'm doing still, most of my time is in clinic because I do see a lot of post-operative patients because I work for two hand surgeons. Um, we're offering telehealth as an option for people that do not want to come in. And basically when we made that decision, I started noticing more people canceling. I tried to reach out to the, some of them personally to say, you know, these are what the, what telehealth could offer you. I could, you know, watch you do your exercises, or I could show you some manual things you can do on your own. Um, and some people were interested and some people weren't, you know, I, I, I haven't seen in my practice telehealth taking over my entire caseload. I think still people in hands, if they can come here, they still want to come here. Uh, so I did my first telehealth this morning. I thought it went really well. Um, I probably was on line with her. She's a, she was a post-op elbow fracture and shoulder fracture, but I had already been seeing her for probably two months. Mm -hmm. She has already pretty well progressed. So I thought it went very well. I answered all her question, had her show me her range of motion over the internet. We reviewed her home program. And again, I thought this, I thought it was a really good effective call. She was happy, asked if we could then reach out again in the future. So that was my first time 
doing it. I have done some telehealth in the past because we see a lot of Peace Corps volunteers in this office. Mm-hmm. So I have met with them online. So, but this was my first one since the COVID-19. Um, I thought it was a good experience and um, I'm promoting it with patients. Not everybody's interested. So we'll see, you know, if we end up having to close at any point in time, I do think that a lot of the people coming now will change to telehealth. So the platform you used, what what did you use and, and did you find it stable? So we're using Google Meetup and this was just the decision by the physicians to choose that platform. That's what they're also using for their telehealth and they have also moved um, to a lot of telehealth as well. Mm-hmm. So I found it easy to use. Yeah. Great. Um, again, we've all been kind of working together, some therapists and other, like we have three offices working on getting the platform set up telling us how to access it and then giving us instructions to give patients. Cause a lot of patients, you know, they are always comfortable with um, technology, technology. Right. So that was also another piece that we had to give some education to them. Well, that's a great job getting that out there as an option. Did you find with this recent state of affairs that the patients are canceling more? How are you, how's the clinic holding up? Have you had, to reduce the number of staff because of the patients canceling? Yes, so they've just changed some staffing. Um, they're furloughing some, some non-essential workers and maybe there'll be more in the future. You know, I've been able to keep my caseload fairly, uh, I've been busy enough where I haven't worried about the, being furloughed yet, but um, I know that the physical therapists are much less busy than I am. And I'm probably seeing more of a load than they are at this point in time. Would you say, though, you're about 50% of normal load, or what would you estimate the percentage of drop-off? Um, my percentage of drop-off, I would say, is 30 to 40%. Okay. Decrease. So I I wasn't working a full... I, I work Monday through Thursday, so I never worked Fridays. And I'd say that now I could easily take one day off and I could just treat three days a week. And then I don't have the schedule isn't completely full. So it may be more, it may be closer to 40 to 50. Okay. And I know you also teach. So how has that shifted? Because from what I understand, most universities are not doing any live sessions and you had a situation where you were 50% live and 50% online and, and what's going on with your teaching position right now? So um, I'm teaching in the master's program, OT master's at Trinity Washington. Uh, It's a hybrid program that's 50% online, 50% face-to-face. We've now moved 100% online. So I'm running WebEx um, lectures during what our normal time would have been face-to-face. And um, a big part of my research class is I, I have the students present journal club and they present an article to the class. So we're doing all of that um, now online. Uh, you know, I think it's as new to me. There's some things I always like to do face-to-face like testing and things like that, but we're working through it. And the students have been really great. I can't have asked for a better group right now. Some of them have really taken the lead because I have two six-year-olds at home now out for the entire year. And that's the biggest struggle is trying to give them what they need 
give the students what they need and then give the client, the patients what they need. It's, it's exhausting right now. So how do you think practitioners are best capable? We as occupational therapists and hand therapists and physical therapists are, how can we treat effectively, be effective parents, teachers and everything? What, what can we do to alleviate some of our own stress, some of the stress our children are having, some of the stressors that your students are having? What are your suggestions? What do you think we can do to help all of these areas? Well, we're going to have bad days, right? There's going to be days where you're just going to say, I can't do this. This is just too much. And I always call mine the daily reset button. And I just say, the day's over. It wasn't, didn't go the way I wanted it to go. And I just get up the next day and I try to start over. Um, as far as having kids at home, you know, my husband works too. And he's a lawyer working from home. and I try to put it when I left this morning, I put a schedule on our little chalkboard. I gave the kids packets of things to work on while I was gone and he's going to do the best he can, but it's not going to be perfect. And I think that we just need to know that life is going to be different now and we have to adapt to the best of our abilities and not be too hard on ourselves, you know, <laughs> give ourselves the space to make mistakes. Yeah. And it's okay to like go in a room and just scream or something. Cause you're just so overwhelmed with everything you're dealing with, or just have a day where you just aren't the person you want to be. But I think the restart the next day to try to like get yourself in a better headspace. And that's, I think really important right now with people just being pulled in a million different directions. And, you know, some employers are going to be easier to deal with, with this whole crisis, but it's a big financial a lot of companies are going to lose a lot of money right now. So, you know, we all want to, and we all want to be able to keep our income. So that's another big part of it is the financial stress of all of this, because we all want to be working, but how do we work? We have kids at home and do we have childcare and does our husband have to work? I mean, these are all questions that a lot of people are going through right now. And I think it's, it's tough. Extremely. I'm sure there's a lot of clinics that have already had to shut down. I know you've put together some research questions to send out to the ASHT community to find out the state of affairs with our members with ASHT. Can you tell us a little bit about what your goal was with this? This was just really an idea I came up with yesterday. So. That's great. <laughs> I just reached out to the research division chair and I said, what do you think about finding out like how this is impacting our members? And uh, she said, this is great. I mean, it's really literally just happened yesterday. So I threw some questions out. I'm hoping we can get something together to get out to the members just so that we can have, you know, an idea of, you know, if this happens again, you know, how is it impacted at this time and how, what can we learn from that moving forward? Um, you know, people are scrambling to figure out this telehealth right now because no one's, a lot of people have never done it before. You know, I know that I have patients that live in Virginia, Maryland, and DC, and mm -hmm. I see all those people on telehealth. The laws were changing daily. Um, ASHT, I was reading a lot of the listers, people just trying to get help from each other. So, I mean, it's nice our community is trying to come together, but you know, it'd be nice if we could learn something from this in the long run to see how we can, you know, so it's not so stressful. <laughs> right, let's hope we never have it next time. But I know. Let's hope 
never a next time, geez, but it's a learning experience, that's for sure. Okay, let's talk some about your amazing research that you've done and that you're doing. So in the past, you've done some research with virtual reality and amputees. And I know that was quite some time ago, but I'd love to just talk a little bit about virtual reality and amputees and that research and anything you have to share on that. So the study I was part of was um, a big group of amputees that were going to be living in a, a virtual reality world. And then um, it was a mixed method study. So it was actually part of my PhD. I did uh, independent, that was part of my independent study. So I actually interviewed some of the amputees that were experiencing the virtual reality. And the virtual reality world gave them experiences that maybe they can't uh, have due to their injury, like, um, you know, ski or water skiing, like that would be an example, like so they could get on water skis. Um, things that they, they probably very difficult to them for them to do at this time. And I interviewed them about what that experience was like. And I did it in virtual reality. So I actually had to get my own virtual reality person. I had to build my own, um, you know, Sarah in the virtual world and meet them in a room and sit down with them in my little business suits. And I had to buy clothes at the store, the virtual reality store. Cool. Um, and it was sort of a funny story because my husband and I still laugh about it because I didn't really even know how to use the controller to move my little um, Sarah around that was in the virtual world. And I got stuck on a table at one point in time. And we were supposed to be in this business, this meeting with all the other researchers. And I was stuck on this table, just standing on this table. <laughs> I couldn't get off. It was like really embarrassing because everyone else is sitting in a chair. So it was just kind of like a fun, it was a really fun um, study to be part of, just to see how, what their experience was and how they would um, describe that. Cool. Yeah, I had a little bit of experience with VR and not necessarily specifically with anything hand related, but the, the device itself had me going through some interesting steps on what to do in order to grab a ball and throw a ball. And it really gave me some insight as to how cool it would be to use VR as a rehab tool and assist. So I'd, I'd love to see more of that happening at some point. It's a really cool opportunity, I believe. Yeah, and the aims of that study were really to, to help the psychosocial element of an amputee um, and also for education. So they offered educational pieces in the VR so that they could also learn about what is the, you know, what's important things to know as an amputee medically. So it's using it as an education tool as much as a psychosocial tool as well. That's great. Well, you know, very OT-like with looking at the psychosocial aspect, which right now, of course, we're really doing probably a lot of that in our hand therapy anyhow, because you're dealing, like you said, with all the stress that everybody's dealing with, whether it's your students' stress, because they're stressed as to whether they're able to do their part-time jobs or your stress with your patients, whether or not they can keep coming to therapy, or is it going to be shut down? Are they going to be able to, are they losing their jobs? So everybody's got a lot more psychological components going on than, than they may normally have. So it's, it's so wonderful that we have that training and ability to hopefully bring some semblance to them. What about your 
other project, your shoulder after a distal radius fracture paper and project. Can you tell us about that? Because I think you can give the listeners some really good tips and education so they can take it right back to their practices or back to their practices as soon as they get back to their practices. Tell us about that study and, and what you've found. So we're hoping to get that submitted either to journal of hand therapy. I mean, the goal is to get into journal of hand, hand therapy because this study won the Burkhalter Award and the Burkhalter, they really push for you to try to get into journal of hand therapy. So that's our goal. Hopefully read, listeners could read the study in its entirety there at some point. Um, so my, in, as you know, working in the hand clinic, I kept having patients come in complaining of shoulder pain after a lot of distal injuries, not just distal radius fracture, hand fracture, just because of the poor positioning of the hand or some had actually had some trauma to the shoulder that maybe had been missed from the fall. So my, what I really wanted to understand was, you know, what does this population look like? You know, um, and how are they different than people that don't have the shoulder issues? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things I wanted to understand was, you know, did this injury to the shoulder happen from the fall or are they just not using their injured side or are they compensating a lot with the shoulder? And other research has really supported that if you can't supinate your forearm, that you're really going to overuse a lot of muscles of your rotator cuff um, or, or your upper trap, which can then lead to, you know, scapular changes, which then can lead to rotator cuff tendonitis. So it's all related. I think I always think about how PTs talk so much about the, the relationship to the ankle, knee, and the hip, but we don't talk enough about the relationship between the hand, elbow, and the shoulder, you know, and that biomechanical aspect of how we move the arm and how one change in movement can affect another joint. So I think when I wanted to look at the study, I wanted to know also, was it fearfulness of from patients? Were they fear of moving their injured limb? And would that, you know, could I find that the people that had the shoulder pathology had more kinesophobia is what we call it in here, which is that fear of movement than people that didn't end up with the shoulder problem. So we, um, the only variables we found different between the groups was the people with the shoulder and the wrist did have higher pain levels. And we did find that they, um, they avoided activity more than the people that did not have the shoulder, additional shoulder impairment. But we saw a lot of correlations in the data that saw that people that did have the high levels of pain did have more fearfulness of moving the injured limb. They also compensated more by using um, the non-injured hand uh, or avoiding activities altogether. I guess the clinical takeaway is when you when you look at a distal radius fracture and even with a distal injury of any sort, you should always screen the entire upper extremity. I'd like to talk just a little bit more about the kinesiophobia. Um, can you go a little more in depth onto the term? And since that's not specific to just your study, how that term can be utilized for therapists in their practices. So um, that the last ASHT meeting I presented on kinesophobia and actually um, one of the main uh, talks in the main hall also, they described a lot of the literature on kinesophobia now. And basically, you can measure it. So it's a measurable construct. There's a Tampa scale kinesophobia, which you can actually give to your clients if you notice that when they come in, they have a 
heightened fearfulness of using their injured side. And what is the treatment for kinesophobia? Well, um, really it's just trying to incorporate occupation-based rehab in the, in the can clinic, getting them to perform occupations with you so that you can help them to perform those occupations at home. I think that's the big key. What I lecture a lot about when I talk about kinesophobia is the use of really occupation. Because that the, the theory of using your arm to do all your daily activities that are meaningful to you hopefully will help you to get through that fearfulness. Um, I mean, we know that these patients do worse, their outcomes are worse, they have higher pain, uh, you know, their function is is worse. So I think it's just really key that we get we we can identify those individuals early in the rehabilitation process and really encourage them to bilateral hand movements, especially if it's their non-dominant side. Because I think sometimes if it's their dom not dominant side, they're sort of sometimes more forced to use the injured limb quicker. So that's helpful. Yeah, very helpful because the kinesiophobia I think is probably underdiagnosed. Yeah. And you know, there's a couple of physicians that have done some studies on it. So people are talking about it more, but I do still think it's something that most patients have when I come in, you know, they've never had, maybe they've never had an injury before. They just are nervous and scared and they don't want to mess something up. Right. They don't want to have to have another surgery. So I think it's important that, you know, that's something that we need to identify early on, you know, cause you, you get those patients that come in and they're just like, Oh, sure. And do all these exercises and don't have any problems, but most people are tentative on their first visits. We can, take that away into our practices and help people move forward with less fear, more function, as well as giving ourselves space right now to make mistakes, give ourselves the okay to wake up the next day and start over. Those are wonderful gems that you've shared in this session and it was extremely valuable and I appreciate your time so much and your your background and sharing with us what you're doing in your clinic. I know everybody's got fears and anxieties and I hope we've helped just a little bit. And thank you, Sarah, for your time. We really appreciate it and look forward to seeing your study coming out soon. So we'll keep in touch. So you can tell us when it's published in the journal. So everybody can read all the details about that. That's going to be fantastic. Thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you for joining us at Hand Therapy Heroes. If you didn't receive the telehealth info sheet, please email us at info at handtherapy.com for the sheet. We did expand it to include more details and valuable resources and educational material. Thanks so much and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.